This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Mephiotes, and this is The Full Story. The 2019 to 2020 Black Summer bushfires burned more than 24 million hectares, destroyed over 3,000 homes and killed 33 people. More than two years on, many people are still waiting to rebuild and living in temporary accommodation. A big part of this delay, according to some experts and bushfire victims, is a lack of assistance from state and federal governments and an excess of red tape. Today, the bushfire victims still waiting for homes. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of May. So, Natasha, it feels almost unbelievable, but it's it's been more than two years since the Black Summer bushfires. Tell me about who you've been speaking to for this story. So, for this story, I've been speaking to people from New South Wales and Victoria who lost their homes during the Black Summer bushfires in 2019 and 2020. Natasha May is a reporter on Guardian Australia's Rural Network. And one of them was Christina. Hey, Christina. How are you? Good, thank you. What can you tell me about her and her story? So Christina and her husband are retired and live in the Nariel Valley, which is this really remote locality in Victoria, close to the New South Wales border and Kosciuszko National Park. And I live there together with my husband on 100 acres. Before the fires, they ran a small hazelnut farm. Around Christmas in 2019, they became increasingly aware of the bushfires that were threatening the area and started to watch more closely. And we were eventually um, evacuated on, I think it was New Year's Day or the 2nd of January. Um, We were told that we had to leave, so we did. As part of the evacuation, they got stuck at a neighbour's property with 65 other people. They were surrounded by flames and had to stay a few nights there with no way in and no way out. And one of their neighbours, also on the property, overheard something on the radio. This is the end and there's no help coming, we were told. over oh Someone goodness. had overheard that over the radio and someone had a transistor radio working, I think. On the 2nd of January 2020, they evacuated. Two days later, their home was destroyed by fire. We lost everything. We lost our home all our personal effects and all our farm sheds and plant and equipment. Christina says losing their home was one thing, but... I think seeing the impact on the wildlife and nature is another thing altogether. To see the sheer scale of the environmental devastation, she says no one should ever have to witness that. It just shows you just the extent of Mother Nature and how how vulnerable we really all are. And when you see the soil charred, just totally fried, unable to support life, it's really in your face frightening. It's just shattering, actually. I wouldn't wish any of that on anybody. So in the aftermath, did Christina and other people in the communities affected by the Black Summer bushfires have any sense of when things 
might get back to normal and what kind of plans they should put in place? So Christina and a lot of the other people that I spoke to assumed that they would be able to start rebuilding fairly soon. For example, one person, Tracy Minton from Kangaroo Valley, whose home was destroyed by the fires. We thought we'd be built in a couple of months and we still haven't rebuilt. Right, so it's been just over two years, two and a half years by some counts. What has happened since then for these bushfire-affected communities? In a lot of cases, unfortunately, not a lot. And the first thing to say here is there aren't any official government estimates available for how many homes have been rebuilt across both Victoria and New South Wales. Mm. But we do have some sense of the recovery in certain areas. So in New South Wales, previous Guardian reporting does show that as of last November, in two of the worst hit local government areas, Vega Valley and Yorubadala, less than 8% of survivors had finished rebuilding. So one area that was particularly hit hard in Victoria was East Gippsland. And you'll remember that's where the Navy had to come in and rescue people off the beach as the town of Malakuta was surrounded by fire. And East Gippsland Shire Council told me that out of the 380 places of residence destroyed in the area, only 44 houses had been rebuilt. Mm. I also spoke to Pete Williams, who's a disaster recovery expert at Deloitte, and he estimates that across Victoria, only 15% of homes have been rebuilt. And that's compared to the Black Saturday bushfires, where 77% were rebuilt after two years. Right, so only 15% of houses have been rebuilt across the state, according to one estimate. That's incredibly low. I mean, how do people feel about that, the people who've been affected by this? So for both Christina and Tracy, their houses haven't been rebuilt two years on, and it's incredibly frustrating. We were ready to move into action. Mm -hmm. We were already wanting to have had everything, like, moving way before then. Overall, we're in a situation where... Two years on, temporary accommodation is being rolled out for yet another disaster, the Northern River's floods, and many bushfire victims are still living in that exact temporary accommodation and the work of rebuilding their homes hasn't even begun. Mm. So why has there been such a delay, Natasha, on rebuilding? It is a complicated situation and there are quite a few reasons why the delay has been particularly bad for bushfire survivors. Firstly, it's important to clarify that some of these statistics are just down to people moving away and deciding not to rebuild at all. For example, in East Gippsland, the local council said about 25 to 30 percent of those that lost a house have also sold the property or have advised that they are not intending to rebuild. Mm. But Pete Williams, the disaster recovery expert, outlined some of the big structural issues that are also at play here. And he said one of the big reasons for this delay is just how remote some of the bushfire-affected towns in Victoria are. So the towns that were affected by the Black Summer fires were much more remote than Black Saturday. And this means it's much tougher to get supplies and to get workers in. But Williams and others also said Australia's disaster recovery response is way too slow and that people affected have to spend months fending for themselves. Mm. And you also have to remember that only a few months after the bushfires, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, and that made everything much more difficult. So that's another big reason. 
Right, so remoteness, government delays and the pandemic. I'm wondering if we can step through how all these issues kind of combined and played out over the past two years, especially for Christina. So what happened to her and her partner after the fires? After their house burnt down, they had no immediate help from local authorities or agencies. They had to figure out how to get their own food, shelter and water. So at the end of January, about a month after the fire destroyed their home, they started organizing their own cleanup of their property. Mm. It took two months for a company to come in to start assisting with the cleanup and three months for the Bushfire Recovery Victoria, or BRV, which is a state government-run body, to step in and provide a caravan for them to live in. But Christina did point out that BRV did want to assist them. They did explore... Mm temporary housing for us and they had a look at us buying a dilapidated old caravan. It was so Mm. bad we couldn't even tow it. That was from St Vincent de Paul. They also found an old bus potentially, but again, we couldn't get that to our property. Christina said a lot of the people that were trying to help from BRV and St Vincent de Paul were really wonderful people and they were always trying their best, but often their hands were tied and the larger structures in place just weren't there to give the best assistance. The staff themselves have been working very hard, but I think at the border level, the framework has got some flaws in it and they're probably been directing their efforts to the wrong areas. It wasn't until a year after the fires that they were able to sign an agreement for government-funded temporary accommodation with BRV. Mm. Tell me about this temporary accommodation. What is available for bushfire communities to live in once they've lost their homes? So the temporary accommodation can vary a little bit between New South Wales and Victoria. In New South Wales, there's pods and it's the Mindaroo pod. And so it's the same accommodation that's currently being rolled out for flood victims that bushfire victims got in New South Wales. It's a bit more basic. It looks a bit like a shipping container and they're usually fitted with a toilet, shower, beds and a small open kitchen. Mm. Tracy Minton had already figured out most of this for herself, but what she said the pod did give her was a shower, which she hadn't had her own in six months, but it did come a whole six months after she'd lost her home. Mm. If we'd got that in February, we would have thought it was Christmas. We would have thought it was fantastic. By the time we got it, a little bit late, we sort of even thought, oh, it's July now, do we really need to bother? And in Victoria, they're modular homes. So they're temporary homes built on people's properties. And they're different from a pod in that they're built a bit more like a house. They can come with multiple rooms. And BRV says they're designed to withstand the tough Victorian conditions. And initially, Christina and her husband declined because I suppose she was receiving this temporary accommodation a whole year on from losing her home. And for a lot of these bushfire survivors, they'd kind of already figured out some form of temporary accommodation because so much time had passed that they really wanted to be focused on trying to rebuild for their permanent home for the future. For me, it's a distraction from our goal of recovery. And of course, in Victoria, even though the government pays for the actual temporary home itself, uh, the people leasing the temporary home have to actually pay the equivalent of social housing to live in these. Right. So people have to pay for this temporary accommodation. How much does it usually cost? 
So in the case of BRV modular homes, it depends on how many bedrooms it has and can be up to $205 a week for a three-bedroom home. But there are financial hardship arrangements to make sure that rent doesn't exceed 25% of any household's total income. So for someone like Christina, she has to pay rent on her temporary accommodation under the leasing arrangement. And this isn't just costing them, it's costing the state government as well. So on top of that, BRV told Guardian Australia that these modular homes typically cost around $150,000 each. But that's not the only cost. I spoke to another bushfire victim, Josh Collings from Kajiwa, which is five hours outside Melbourne, and he believes the cost of the modular home and the various payments designed to support people, plus the cost of removing the housing and the project management associated with these temporary measures, would be approaching the cost of rebuilding a permanent home altogether. Right. So according to Josh, at least, the government is essentially investing in quite expensive temporary housing, whereas that money could have gone to actual houses. Is that what he's saying? Yeah. And I asked BRV this exact question, and they said that people need both short-term housing as well as long-term support to rebuild after a bushfire. That's why BRV introduced the opt-in short-term modular housing program for people who lost their homes in the 2019-20 bushfires. The specially built modular housing allows people to live safely and comfortably on their own property while they undertake their rebuild in housing that can withstand tough Victorian conditions. Mm. I also asked the Minister for Emergency Management and National Recovery and Resilience, Bridget McKenzie, about some of the issues that came up in my reporting. And she said that while disaster recovery funding arrangements costs are jointly shared between the Commonwealth government and the states, the states are responsible for the implementation of that spending. Overall, the minister says the Commonwealth spent $2.9 billion on immediate support for people impacted by the Black Summer bushfires for a range of assistance measures. Next, how a federal government policy designed to kickstart the economy made life harder for some bushfire victims. So, Natasha, as you've outlined, the immediate government assistance with things like cleanups and temporary homes did suffer from delays, according to people you spoke to, with some like Christina only receiving this accommodation a full year later. What about rebuilding a permanent home? How has that gone for Christina? Well, to get the rebuild going, they had to go through a series of approvals with the local council. But because there's a lot of bureaucracy and back and forth involved, Christina and her husband paid a planner to do all the paperwork. So that cost us around $27,000 because we wanted to make sure that we could get the planning permission through and meet the council's requirements and standards. And so that's all been approved to rebuild Mm. in the same place. Mm. But now it's two years later and they've only just started to rebuild and only got so far as building the house foundations. Mm. Why has it taken so long just to get the foundations down on their house? Well, as I mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic halted shipping of building supplies from China. 
This happened at the same time the government introduced stimulus packages that encouraged building, so there was a material and labour shortage. Also, when it comes to builders, Christina said the $25,000 home builder incentive that was introduced in 2020 to help kickstart construction on homes and the economy during the pandemic didn't take into account people going through disaster recovery. Mm. Not to say they weren't eligible for the grant, but what it did essentially was create a lot more demand and take the builders away from people struggling to rebuild a home at all. It's taken away tradies. Like, why would you want to build a house in a remote area if you can just stay where you live and service the people with the $25,000 scheme? So we had it. It's a shame that when they released that policy that they didn't think about how not to take away from the rebuild process of people in a disaster. Right. So there was basically a rush on building because of this government incentive. And that led to all the builders being concentrated in the cities because there was just so much work on. Is that fair to say? Pretty much. And one of the other aggravating factors was that a lot of the bushfire victims had actually been locked into contracts that were arranged right before the pandemic struck. And then because the cost of building materials went up so much, all of a sudden they're locked into underpriced contracts. And it's just much harder for the builder to be able to deliver on that because it's going to leave them out of pocket. Mm. I spoke to one builder in regional Victoria who says that builders really care about their customers and want to be able to put a roof over their heads. But the problem was they were going to actually be losing money if they tried to deliver on these underpriced contracts. Mm. As you've mentioned, the people that you spoke to broadly feel that support came a bit too late and was really focused on temporary measures over permanent solutions. What would people like to see instead in terms of support? And are there better models of disaster recovery that we can look to? Well, I suppose what's interesting is that we actually can look to other disasters in Australia's recent history. Pete Williams from Deloitte said during Black Saturday, there was a one-stop shop rebuilding advisory concierge that was available in places like Flowerdale near the Yarra Valley. And what this concierge service offered was all the services that people needed from insurance to builders to getting council red tape cut was offered in the one place. Mm. And this kind of service wasn't on offer during Black Summer bushfire recovery. And Williams says this sort of service should be the first port of call after natural disasters and that there should be more options to help people make choices regarding their safety and finances, including interest-free loans. And the government perhaps also needs to be able to buy back land deemed unsafe to rebuild on. Mm. But also the recent floods are quite interesting. So despite a lot of criticism of the response so far, the New South Wales government has recently announced a new body to lead the long-term reconstruction of flood-affected areas across New South Wales. So the body will have the power to speed up and fast-track building of new homes and speed up the delivery of planning proposals. And what they say they're also going to be able to do is bring together different sectors like insurance, construction and infrastructure, working alongside local government, industry, businesses and residents. So there's a similar central one-stop shop model here. So it's been two years, more than two years for people like Christina and Tracy. What has this meant for them? 
not having a permanent home for the past two years? What kind of impact has that had on their lives? Well, I think one line that just really stands out for me is what Josh Collins said, we desperately need to feel stable and we don't. Mm. And I think not having that stability in your life has so many implications, both for your physical and mental health. And Josh has told me he's experienced anxiety for the first time in his life, not having stable accommodation. And Christine is in the same position. The insecurity that two years later, they still haven't rebuilt their house, but also feeling that they've been left behind during the recovery. And while the bushfires might no longer be in the national headlines, they're still grappling with the effects of this disaster. That was Natasha May talking to Christina Aston and Tracy Minton. I do recommend checking out Natasha's piece, Disasters in the Recovery, Bushfire Survivors Still Waiting for Homes. It's got some pictures of Tracy Minton and the temporary accommodation she's been living in, which really hammers home what daily life is like in this kind of unstable housing. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Gabrielle Jackson, Miles Martignoni and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.